Uh, well, it is a big week ahead of us, um, and I'd like to uh, ask you to express something of your feelings about various things that are coming up in this week ahead. Um, if you're here in the building, you might want to wave or do jazz hands or something to express how you feel about the things we're going to ask you. If you're at home, uh, you can shout or holler or grumble or grouch, whatever you want to do um, to, to express how you're feeling. So, um, there are some national days coming up this week. I think they're probably all American. Uh, Monday is apparently uh, Bubble Wrap Appreciation Day. Uh, how, how do you feel about that? Okay. Uh, Tuesday is um, Green Juice Day. I have to look up what green juice is. It is basically any type of green vegetable pulverized into a liquid. Uh, uh, how do you feel about that? Wow. I think, think more positive responses out than bubble wrap. Uh, how about this then? Wednesday, to contrast Tuesday, is a uh, National Chocolate Cake Day. A bit more approval, okay. Uh, Thursday, International Lego Day. Okay, right. Friday is National Big Wig Day, which is literally wearing big wigs. Okay, Paul is very excited about that. I guess people with hair like mine and Paul's beard don't get quite excited about days like that. And all of these days, though, for Kingfisher Church, are part of our week of prayer. I'm not going to ask you to express publicly how you feel about the fact that we have a week of prayer. Um, but I do want us to think about how do we feel about it? It's a week of prayer coming up. Maybe you feel something of an A or B or a C. Maybe you feel a bit A, a bit ambivalent about a week of prayer. Week of prayer? And? Well, maybe you've not realised that we're doing this. Uh, uh, maybe, um, maybe you have heard that we've got a week of prayer. We've certainly mentioned it already in the service. And maybe... Um, you think, well, not really going to make that much difference to what I do. You're just a bit ambivalent. Um, maybe though your response is a bit more B, a bit buoyant. You're buzzing about it. This is better than chocolate cake day. You're, you're, you're sleepless with excitement about a week of prayer. You've already started praying in anticipation of a week of prayer. Maybe you are buzzing with excitement. Or maybe, though, C, uh, you're feeling a little bit condemned, a little bit crushed. Because that P word, the talk of prayer... Whenever you hear it, you, you, whenever you hear the fact that there is a call to prayer, you just feel your shoulders slump a little bit. And you have this kind of nagging feeling that you think, well, I, I know I should pray more. I, I know my prayer life is weak, and, and I just feel a bit guilty about it. I feel guilty about how, how easy it is to go maybe even days without praying, and the thought of a week of prayer, I just feel a bit gloomy, to be honest. Prayer is hard. It's just hard. It's hard to have the desire to pray. Hard not to feel useless at prayer. Hard to plan to pray. Hard to get started in prayer. Hard to keep going once we've got started. Hard to pray with others. Hard to know what to say. It's hard, hard in so many ways. And if you don't find it hard, please, please, please pray for the rest of us who do. Prayer is hard. So we're going to turn our attention to some of the words of the Lord Jesus saying, come in Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of this section, Matthew 5-7, to the Sermon on the Mount, as uh, Jesus has announced the inbreaking of heaven's kingdom on earth. He's now teaching what it means uh, to live as those who have put their trust in Jesus, those who have repented and believed the good news. How should they live? Uh, and in the middle of the sermon, in chapter 6, he gets to the subject of prayer. Uh, and he deals with the subject of prayer by examples, first of all, by bad examples. Uh, verse 5, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. That's a bad example. Verse Seven, don't keep on babbling like pagans. Another bad example. And then in verse uh, verse uh, 
9, he gets to a good example of how to pray. Uh, we call the words the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us how to pray this then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. At the beginning of prayer, prayer begins with a contemplation of God and who we are in relation to him, our Father in heaven. You see, the way that we pray comes directly from what we think about God. An atheist who denies the existence of God, how do they pray? Well, they don't do that because they don't think God is there. That's why prayerlessness is called practical atheism. And what Jesus has shown is he holds up these bad examples. He's shown what we think about God affects how we pray. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. What do the hypocrites do? Or will they pray to draw attention to themselves? They seek themselves in prayer. They think the world rotates around them, the world exists for them, and God included. And so they don't think too much of God. And so they pray to get praise for themselves. And Jesus says, don't pray like the pagans, or what do they do? They think they can force God to do what they want by repeating the same words over and over again. They think maybe God is reluctant to give, so they've got to kind of force him to do it. Or somehow they think God can be manipulated. How we pray reveals what we think about God. If we think God is weak, we won't ask much of him. If we think God is disappointed with us, our prayers will be very cold. If we think that God isn't that important to our lives, then we're not going to bother praying much at all. And Jim Packer said this, wrote this. I believe that prayer is the measure of the man or woman or child prayer, the measure of the person spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. How do we pray? And Jesus said, do it like this. Our Father in heaven. A prayer begins with a contemplation of God and who we are in relation to him. Our Father in heaven. Let's try and open these words up a little bit. Um, we're going to try and open them up by turning to a time when a man was called to pray. And you, you might want to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 33. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet in Jerusalem and terrible times in Jerusalem. Sin was everywhere. Uh, God's word had been ignored and the city was under attack by this mighty army of the Babylonians. And Jeremiah was called to bring God's word to these people in those times. And the people didn't like what he had to say. He wasn't well received. In fact, so much was he not well received that in Jeremiah 33 we find that a prophet, whilst the city is under siege, is being held in prison, in captivity, by the people of the city. Uh, let me read there, just the first nine verses of Jeremiah 33. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says he who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in this city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword in the fight with the Babylonians. They will be filled with the dead bodies of the people I will slay in my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from this city because of all its wickedness. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. 
I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sin of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise and honour before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. Uh, there's an awful lot going on here in Jeremiah and his passage in these times. Uh, but let's just think how this might help us to pray. Because I don't know if you noticed in that reading that Jeremiah is told to pray. In verse 3, God says, Call to me, pray to me, and I will answer you. So why was he told to pray? Well, look at verse 1. Jeremiah is still confined in the courtyard of the guard. Uh, this man is had his freedom taken away. How does he respond to that? Respond when the confinement continues. It, it may be that he is called to pray uh, because he's finding it hard to pray. Uh, we're not told that much, but, but we want to think what makes it hard to pray. And one of the things that makes it hard to pray is when our circumstances blind us or, or cover away the reality of God and who we are in relation to him. Uh, this prophet Jeremiah was in terrible, terrible times. And how did it affect his prayer life? And when we are hard-pressed, how does it affect our prayer life? Now, if the case is that in times of difficulty we think less about God, we will pray less. And adversity can do that. It can, it can, we get so caught up in the trouble that we don't call out to God. In Hosea, Hosea chapter 7, we hear about people wailing. They are desperate because of their troubles. And God says, they do not cry to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. In the hard times of adversity, people are praying less. Unlike Job, Job who experienced unspeakably awful things, and he cried because of them, but he said, my eyes pour out tears to God. His cry was to God. And that makes a world of difference. It, it's not any difficult times that make it hard to pray and when things go well, we can forget about God. And when we forget about God, we don't pray to God. And if we think that we're, we're managing okay, we've managed to hold things together, we're doing okay, we've, we've got everything in place, and we forget where all the good things come from, or we'll forget. And, and someone said, prayerlessness is essentially forgetfulness of God. Prayerlessness is forgetfulness of God. Now, well, if Jeremiah was forgetting God... This word from the Lord begins with a call to remember. And then these verses impress upon him what God is like. Because that's where prayer begins. It begins with the contemplation of God and who we are in relation to him. How do we see it in this passage? Well, first of all, I think we see that God is a terror to sinners because of his holiness. Look at this word from the Lord. It begins in verse 2. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name, call to me. And Jesus says we pray to our Father in heaven. And we pray to God who is first above all, God who made all things. We call to the one who has all power, who, who established everything, all things from him. And he has authority over everything that he made. He is so great, and what are we in comparison to him? We are dust. We are an immeasurably small moment on a tiny little planet. 
I look at this picture, well, that's the sun. You see that little tiny black dot in the corner? That's the planet Mercury passing in front of the sun. Similar size to us, Mercury. Similar size to the Earth. God made it. The sun isn't even big compared to other stars. God made it all. But how should we respond to the incomparably great power of the Creator? Well, in the times of Jeremiah, the people in Jerusalem had spurned this God. You fathom that. This God, this, this, this one true God of all majesty and all power, who made all things more great than our words can ever express, the people had spurned him. In the previous chapter, it puts it like this, God says, they turned their backs to me and not their faces. And verse 5 of our passage speaks about all their wickedness. So God is too great not to be interested in this. These people turn their backs to God and so verse 5 says, I will hide my face from this city. And if the sun refuses to shine, plunging the world into perpetual night, it would be far, far better than for God to hide his face. God is holiness, and he will not and cannot look upon sin. That doesn't mean he ignores sin, it means his glory depends on him dealing with it. Which is what he spoke to Jeremiah about Jerusalem. The Babylonians had surrounded the city. And in the city, the people had pulled down the buildings to strengthen the walls against the attack. They were ready to, to fight off the, the invaders. For that city, says the Lord, will be filled with the dead bodies of the people I will slay in my anger and wrath. The Babylonians would carry the swords, but it's the Lord who is the ultimate cause of their destruction. And what should we do with this as we, we read a passage like this? How should we look at it? Well, these things, these events of history, they stand as a warning for us today. The horrors that happened in Jerusalem are a window opened for us on what is coming to all who turn their backs on the Lord, all who sin and fall short of his glory. See, God's anger doesn't ebb and flow. God is not like us. This wrath of Jeremiah 33 is the same that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans 1, when he wrote how the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And, and in Romans 2, when it says about the people who refuse to repent, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. There's this great day of reckoning. It's coming a day of justice, a day when sin will be punished, a day when there will be no more excuses, when every mouth will be shut and we will realise the extent of our sin. And those corpses that filled the city of Jerusalem, that image sketched in Jeremiah 33, an image so hard to stomach if we try to think on it, it's a drop in, a, in the ocean compared to that coming day. Now Jesus called it the outside. The place of weeping and grinding of teeth, the unquenchable fire. And we have all sinned. We don't feel it like we should, we don't like to think about it. But our sin hands us over eternal destruction. And the only thing that holds us from immediately falling into it is just the will of God. We're not held back from the wrath of God because we're really not too bad. 
that the sin of this day is worthy of our eternal destruction. And we're not held back because we've got some nice bits that outweigh the bad. We're not held back because God hasn't quite decided how it's going to end. We're not held back because there's another force in the universe that's able to hold back God's hand. There is nothing. We are headed towards the day of wrath and there's no excuse, there's no grounds for complaint. There is nothing, nothing but. We'll come to the but in a minute. But Jeremiah is called to pray. And this is what he is reminded of as he is called to pray. He's reminded of who God is. And that God is not to be trifled with. God isn't an add-on. God isn't an extra. God isn't a sideshow. God isn't just the main event. He is the only event. And Jesus teaches us to pray. We pray to God who is in heaven. God who is seated in the control room of the universe. Because God is the creator of everything. God does whatever pleases him. Uh, he is holy. Burning hotter than the sun, he is white, hot in his holiness. And he will not abide sin in his world, so sin will meet his fury. And then as we look at that, just think with me for a moment on the arrogance of the person who hears all of this, who looks at this and responds and says, well that doesn't make me want to pray. If that's what God is like, I don't, I don't want to talk to God. Arrogance to say such a thing. God doesn't deal with the world according to our preferences. God is God. He's in heaven. He's not some genie to manipulate to get what we want. He isn't some fawning fan who, who, who exists to boost our ego. He's God. And yet we struggle to believe it. We get glimpses of it. But if we really knew this, then we would be shaking, not because of the cold as it is in this room, but, but for the terror to contemplate such a God. If Jeremiah was forgetting God, then this word from the Lord begins with a call to remember, words that impress upon him what God is like. And prayer begins with a contemplation of God and who we are in relation to him. We see in this passage that first God is a terror to sinners because of his holiness. But then secondly we see God is a terror to sinners because of his grace. Imagine you walk down the street and you bump into something. So what do you do? Depends what you bump into, doesn't it? You bump into a fly, you might not even notice that it happened. You bump into a tractor, okay, things will be determined by the tractor and not by you, won't they? No, 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 why will you be affected by the tractor? Because it's huge. You can't escape the impact. How big is God's grace? So when Jesus went to the house of a Pharisee, a sinful woman interrupted the meal and she, she poured out her love for Jesus and washed his feet with her tears. And Jesus said to the offended Pharisee, you just don't get it. Your heart is not affected because you think grace is a small thing. And Jesus said, this woman, she realises how great grace is and her heart will never be the same because of it. I look at verse 6. Nevertheless, says the Lord. Literally, he says, behold, I am about to do this. What will he do? Promises, promises, promises. I will bring health and healing. First of all, there's a promise of physical restoration. A sense here that what God is promising is to restore the very flesh of these people. 
Then there's a promise of existential restoration. I will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. And this peace is not the absence of conflict. It's a, it's a perfect relationship between all things. It's harmony. Uh, as the world was created to be with everything complementing one another. Harmony and abundance. Then there's captive restoration. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity. And then there's spiritual restoration. I will cleanse them from all the sins they have committed against me and will forgive their sins of rebellion against me. You see, the root and the core of the trouble for all these people is that they sinned against God. And then the same God against whom they have sinned promises complete cleansing and total forgiveness. Restoration of relationship with God. This grace, this is grace. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. We see grace in technicolor here. What the people deserve is to face the wrath of God. What God promises is the blessings and the goodness of God. These people have spurned God, but God promises forgiveness. And at verse 9, look at verse 9, to see the result of this grace. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise and honour before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do. See, this city will not get praised. God will get praised. God will get praised because this city that was so wicked has received such lavish grace and the world will see and say, wow, like we were seeing in that song earlier. Wow, they'll marvel at a God who could be so good. But this, this city, these grace-soaked people will be enabled to live for the praise of God. And their sin-twisted hearts will be made straight and their bent affections will be directed to the one who can satisfy their happiness forever and ever. That's how great God's love is for them. How great is God's love that he pours upon them grace so they can enjoy him. God who is most vast and most perfect in all his happiness. God's grace enables these wretched sinners to enjoy him. And John Piper writes this. Do you feel loved by God because you believe he makes much of you? Or because you believe he frees you and empowers you to enjoy making much of him? Now how we answer that kind of question will shape the way that we pray. And the hypocrites, they wanted it to be all about their fame. The pagans prayed so that God could give them what they wanted. But Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, it's not about our fame. It's not about our glory. It's always about you and the world will only work if you get the glory. And if we snatch honour for ourselves, we'll get stuck in our sin. It's only about you, God. It's only about our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. It's not about us getting what we want. It's about your will being done on earth. But how about for you? How does your soul react to the grace of God? Is it like bumping into a fly or a tractor? Look again at verse 9. At the end of verse 9. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. Awe and trembling, quaking and shaking. And when this grace of God meets a sin-wrecked soul, that soul melts and trembles because of the goodness. Now if Jeremiah was forgetting God, this word from the Lord begins with a call to remember, words that impress what God is like upon him. 
A prayer begins with a contemplation of God and who we are in relation to him. Who is God? He is a fear. Fearful in his holiness, but even more so in his grace. Abounding, so abounding in goodness that he is terrifying. But for what then of our prayers? There might just be that one of the reasons we struggle to pray is that we just don't know God like that. But we don't know what it is to tremble before his might and his holiness. We don't really know what it is to loathe our sin. We don't know what it is to tremble before his grace. And we like grace. Of course we like grace. Grace is nice, isn't it? But our souls don't shake at the abundance of the goodness lavished on us. And so how do we respond to the invitation of verse 3? God says, call to me and I will answer you. But how do we do that? How? We must lift our eyes to Jesus Christ. Everything we find in Jeremiah 33 is aching towards Christ. The rest of the chapter, if we read on, makes it abundantly clear the day of fulfillment will be when the Messiah comes. You see these things we see about God, that God is a terror to sinners because of his holiness. Well, God has appointed his son, Jesus Christ, to crush the rebellious in righteousness. The wrath of Jesus Christ will be poured out on the last day. But God has also appointed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a refuge to the rebellious. A refuge to all sinners who turn to him. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, well in him there is physical restoration, even resurrection to immortality. And in the Lord Jesus Christ there is existential restoration. Colossians 1 describes the work of Christ, saying God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And in Christ there is captive restoration. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, from being the captives of sin and, and shame and death, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And in this Son who he loves, we have redemption, forgiveness of sin, spiritual restoration. In the Lord Jesus Christ, he died for our sins to bring us to God. Our sins had cut us off from God's goodness, but Christ came and stood in the breach for us. Christ took all that wrath of God that our sins deserved. He took it to himself so that by his death we can be forgiven, and so that by his death we can be cleansed, and so that by his death, we who were once so far away can be brought so near to God, so near in Christ, that we are called children of God. Why Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven. The God in heaven is our Father. We can only pray that because of Jesus. And prayer begins with the contemplation of God and who we are in relation to him. God is the highest power. God is beyond all understanding. Immense, immense in his holiness, terrible in his judgment, and yet lavishing oceans and oceans of grace, grace upon grace upon grace, that we might come to him and call to him as our Father. So when Jesus teaches about prayer, he says, don't be like the hypocrites, because their God is too small. And don't be like the pagans, because their God is too weak. But you pray to our Father who is in heaven. So how about you? 
How do you feel about prayer? Now, I think many of us find it hard. And I think there is something that is incredibly appropriate about finding prayer hard. You see, as Jesus leads us into prayer, he gives us words which remind us that we are not in control. They like Jeremiah being held in prison, in confinement where he is called to pray, not because he's able to do much. He's not in control, so obviously not in control, like we are obviously not in control, and that's okay, because God is, and he is our Father in heaven. You see, prayer is hard, hard, hard because we are weak, and we're small-minded, but we find it hard to, to know God as he is, and we're cold-hearted, find it really difficult to feel anything like what is fitting for people who have been so lavished in grace and goodness. And we're weak-willed. We make great plans and then we fall on our faces again and again. Or maybe I'm just talking about me. It's hard. Prayer is hard because we are weak. And yet, that is the essence of prayer. In prayer, we're not to be hypocrites. Not to parade our overinflated sense of self-importance. We're not to be pagans who think they can control things. We are weak. We're children. We're small. And prayer doesn't put us in the control room. Prayer isn't given to make God do our bidding. Prayer doesn't begin by saying, look at me on earth and do what I say. Prayer begins by saying, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Submission. When we begin, we put ourselves before our God and Father, we bear our souls to him. And we look to him, we, we call to him, and he will answer us. And prayer is weakness. And yet, as one writer puts it, prayer is essentially weaponized. So, will you use your weakness? Will you weaponize your weakness? Will you stumble on in prayer so that our great Heavenly Father might get praise and honor, so that our lovely Lord Jesus might have the reward of his suffering? And this week ahead is a week of prayer for us at Kingfisher Church. Are you going to get involved? Now each day we're going to send out an email with some ideas of things to pray for. Monday's one went out this morning. A deliberate mistake, I assume, by myself. Um, in, in that email each day there'll be a little video that Lizzie's prepared from one of our mission partners just to give some stimulus to prayer. Um, Lizzie's also sent out a really helpful email with a load of ideas of what families can do. Um, to pray together, um, what, why not take some time this afternoon to make a plan for how you're going to pray this week? No, 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 what, what would it mean for you? That's what I'm asking. What am I asking you? I'm asking, no, please would you consider what it would mean to, for you to make this a week of prayer? And the answer is going to be different for each of us. Um, and what would it mean for you? Uh, so far, we've only planned a couple of occasions of times to pray together. We've got Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock, Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock. Um, but would you consider, as you think about when you might pray, how you could invite others to join you in that? Um, if you think that, maybe I could set aside 15 minutes on Thursday morning. Uh, then, then why not see if someone else can join you? Uh, I'd be really happy to help facilitate that. I can set up a Zoom meeting. I'd be happy to lead that time if that's what you'd like. Um, but I'd love for you to get in touch with me, and then each day as those emails go out, we can have the information about when uh, we can meet to pray. 
How can you make this coming week a week of prayer? Our God, you are very, very great. A great beyond our understanding. Our God in heaven, please would you impress upon our hearts who you are. May we know you better. And would you help us to pray? Help us in our weakness. Help us where we don't know where to start. Help us when we don't know how to go on, how we don't know quite how to do it. We we feel all kinds of failures because of that, and yet we praise you that we come to a God of such grace. We call upon our Heavenly Father. So in this week ahead, dear God, please would you help us to pray. Amen.